be before you this morning and to dive into God's word together. I'm so thankful for Pastor Patrick, who so faithfully uh, preaches to us every week. I've prepared this sermon over the course of several months. Uh, It's taken a lot of work, and I just can't believe that Pastor Patrick does this so faithfully week after week. And uh, if you thought that he got a break this week, he really didn't. He had to read through three different drafts, meet with me with twice, uh, several exchanges of emails and texts. Um, So there's definitely a lot of his labor in this as well. Last weekend, my wife and I, we got to go up to Lake Nascimento up north and spend spend some time with a friend of ours and her family. And after a really long day out at the lake, we went back to uh, their home and we sat outside in the backyard around their fire pit. And I was looking at the fire pit. Initially, when we sat down, the fire was really hot. The flames were leaping up really high, and it was quite warm. And then after some time, over the course of the conversation, the fire slowly died down. You can even see the flames of the fire over the lip of the fire pit, and it just became a little bit colder. But then our friend would get up, and she would grab another log and put it into the fire. Nothing would happen for a couple minutes. But then again, the flames would catch on, and the fire would be rekindled, and it would be really warm again. I think in our own lives, we are prone to this pattern where our initial passion or our awe for something fades away. Are you able to think of something in your mind right now? I think for many of us, it can be our spiritual life. Think back to when you first got saved. Maybe you were five years old and you first realized that Christ died for you and you can go to heaven and the absolute awe and amazement you had for that. Or maybe you were in your 20s and you were in sin and God turned your life around and you looked at your sin and you were like, God, how could you have ever taken me into your fold? And you're just filled with awe and amazement. That's the greatest news we have, the gospel. That's the covenant that God has given to us. The covenant says that he will cleanse us of our sin and restore fellowship with him. And it's so amazing because of how undeserving we are and how holy and magnificent our God is. We become callous to the magnitude of our salvation. However, it doesn't last forever. Those initial feelings of awe and amazement are rekindled. It may be through a sermon that we listen to, a book that we read, or a passage that we meditate on. This morning, I want us to look at a story that I've been meditating on for the last several months, and it's really rekindled my passion my amazement and my awe for the love that God has for us. We're going to be looking at the story of Mephibosheth and David in 2 Samuel chapter 9, if you want to turn with me there. So I want to invite you this morning to journey with me through this passage. And we're going to have this passage rekindle our awe and amazement for the love that God has for us. And we're going to do that by looking at three different things. We're going to look at the root of covenant, We're going to look at the results of covenant, which then leads us to the response to covenant. So let's read 2 Samuel chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Then David said, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. 
The king said, is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he, David said, or he, Mephibosheth said, here is your servant. David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And for the sake of your father, Jonathan, will restore to you all the land of your grandfather, Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. Again, he prostrated himself and said, what is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, all that belonged to Saul and to all his house, I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson shall eat at my table regularly. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my Lord, the king commands his servant, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah and all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate at the king's table regularly. Now he was lame in both feet. Let's bow in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your word that is so powerful, that reveals the truths of your gospel, that reveals your loving kindness to us. We pray, Lord, that as we go through this passage this morning, that you would remove any distraction, that you would work through me as a vessel, and that we'd be able to glean the riches of your word from it. We commit this time in your hands, in your son's precious holy and worthy name we pray. Amen. So before we dive into 2 Samuel chapter 9, let me set the background a little bit. The last time we were in this portion of scripture, we were going through the book of Judges when Patrick was going through it maybe a couple years ago now. And if you remember, Israel was stuck in a cycle of sin. They would sin, God would punish them, they would cry out because they were in oppression, and so God would raise them a judge, and the judge would go and tell them what they needed to do and how they needed to repent. And so Israel would repent and they would be in a time of peace again for a little bit, usually the course of the life of the judge. And then the cycle of sin would repeat again. And each time it got progressively worse. And that's where we're at when we first come into 1 Samuel. Israel is continuing to sin and now there is a guy named Samuel, a prophet, who is a judge over Israel. And they tell Samuel, give us a king because we want to be like the other nations around us. Now, this was them rejecting God as their king. So God, through Samuel, anoints Saul as king over Israel. Saul is a handsome person. He is a head taller than all the other Israelites. He is a strong warrior. And initially, his rule starts out pretty well. But it quickly takes a downward turn. Saul's shortfall was his disobedience. There was a time when he was supposed to wait for Samuel to offer a sacrifice to the Lord before going into battle. And he chose to go ahead and do it without Samuel because he wanted to go into battle. So when Samuel came to him, 
and had seen that Saul had already offered the sacrifice, he said to him, why have you done this? You dishonored and displeased the Lord by doing this. And because of that, the Lord removed the kingdom of Israel from Saul. He said, your lineage shall no longer be on the throne of Israel. And then David enters the story. Samuel then anoints David as king of Israel. And we're familiar with the stories of David killing Goliath. After that, he became one of the members of Saul's court. He was a warrior in Saul's court. People would, people would rally behind David because they would say, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. And when Saul would hear those words, he was incited to anger against David. He saw the favor of the Lord on David and he wanted to kill him because of that. So there was a time when David was sitting in Saul's court because Saul would go into fits of rage and he was possessed by a demon. And so to calm him down, David would play the harp. And during one of these times, Saul took a spear that was next to him and threw it at him to kill him. And it narrowly missed him. David spent many years on the run from Saul because Saul hated him. Eventually, Saul, in battle against the Philistines, died. And at the beginning of 1 Samuel, we see David ascend to the throne. For the first seven to eight years of his rule, he is bringing all the tribes of Israel under him. It wasn't an immediate rule over the entire kingdom. It took time. And then for the next seven to eight years, he fought against all the borders of Israel, extending them out and putting rest and peace with uh, the enemies around Israel. And so that's where we're at when we come to 2 Samuel chapter 9. The previous chapter, chapter 8, just told us of David's officials that he had elected and the rulers that he had put in place and that he was finally in Jerusalem and in control. So that's how we're coming to this first verse. So let's look at the root of covenant, starting with verse 1. It says, Then David said, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him loving kindness for Jonathan's sake? So the first question to ask here is why? Why is David doing this? Why is he trying to find someone from Saul's household to show kindness to? Didn't we just talk about how Saul tried to kill him for many years who threw a spear at him? Is he trying to do some sort of political move here where he's trying to show that he actually does have a good relationship with Saul's family and he wants all of Israel under his control? Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 20. Saul had a son named Jonathan. And Jonathan and David had a very different relationship. They loved one another. They were like brothers to each other. Many a times Jonathan would keep David away from Saul or warn David to flee when Saul would go into his fits of anger because he loved David. And they were so close with one another that they decided to form a covenant together. So in 1 Samuel chapter 20, let's look at verse 14 through 17. We see the covenant that Jonathan and David form. This is Jonathan speaking here in verse 14. He says, if I am still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? You shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever. Not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord require it at the hands of David's enemies. Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. So going back to 2 Samuel chapter 9, 
what, Dave, what Jonathan foresaw David's enemies being put to rest just took place in 2 Samuel chapter 8. So David, it's coming back to his memory. All his enemies have been put to rest and he remembers the covenant that he made with Jonathan. This covenant was made with Jonathan out of love. Think back to when you were maybe seven years old. We're all familiar with the concepts of promises, right? Do you remember with your friends, you would make a promise like, you know, I'll give you my homemade oatmeal cookie today, but you have to give me your brownie, brownie tomorrow. We'd make promises like that. And in those promises, we have what's called in, in contractual law, they call it a consideration. That's what gets the other person to oblige. So if I'm giving you my cookie today, the consideration in exchange is the brownie that you're going to give me tomorrow. It's the same thing when we grow older, we have things like car payments, right? We ask, the, we ask for money from the bank and the bank will give it to you, uh, give you that money. But the consideration in exchange is the interest that you're going to pay on that loan. Promises typically and contracts have a consideration within them. But covenants are quite different. They don't have a consideration. It's not an if clause. It's not you should do this and then I will do that. No, it's a free gift. David was making a willing promise to Jonathan out of his love. That's the root of covenant. It wasn't some obligation. It wasn't David's advisors telling him, hey, this is a good thing to do. You should, you know, fix some relationships with Saul's family. No, this was driven out of love for his friend, Jonathan. And we're familiar with the concept of covenants in the church. We don't directly call it covenants many a times, but take church membership, for example. When a person comes to the church and says, I will be a part of this church, I'm going to give, I'm going to serve, I'm going to put myself under the church's eldership, they're making a covenant and it's out of love for the church. Think of an elder or a pastor over the church. When they take that role, they're saying they will shepherd and protect the flock. And they're doing that in covenant out of love. The greatest example we see is marriage. When two sinful people come before God and they wholly pledge themselves to each other. And marriage makes it very explicit that there's no consideration. That's why we say, richer or poorer, sickness and health, till death do us apart. We wholly pledge ourselves to the other person. There's no consideration in covenant. So David, out of love for Jonathan, is remembering this. And out of his love, he's doing this for Jonathan. The root of covenant is love. So let's look at the next couple of verses, verse 2 and 3. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the loving kindness of God? Okay, we just defined the root of covenant as love. But I want to pose a problem here. If we define it as love and the world defines love as an affection or a feeling we know that our hearts are deceptive. They're fleeting. They, they can't stay on the same thing day over day. How many of us remember when we made a promise, you know, maybe when we were 10 or 11 years old and we promised our friend, hey, we're going to be friends forever. And maybe now it's been 15 years since we've talked to them. Love in and of itself is not enough to uphold covenant. 
So here David says the loving kindness of God. This is an expression to show the greatest possible kindness. It's the same phrase that David and Jonathan used in 1 Samuel chapter 20 that we saw. The original Jewish audience, this would have made complete sense. Covenant is not founded simply on a love that you and I are capable inherently of ourselves. It was founded in the love of God, his loving kindness. Otherwise, we know it as the word, the Hebrew word hesed. So think back to when Yahweh, when the Israelites were wandering around in the wilderness after they came out of Egypt, when he reaffirmed his covenant with Abraham at that time, he prefaced it with his character. In Exodus chapter 34, he says, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, otherwise hesed. So we established the root of covenant is love, but I want to add a layer here. It's not just any kind of love. The root of covenant is the loving kindness of God, the hesed of God that's founded on his character and his nature. It's why the church is different. Let's go back to the examples we just talked about. You know, we talked about church membership. How is someone able to commit to the church for a lifetime? It's not because of the love that we are capable in and of ourselves. No, it's the hesed love of God working through us, a love for the church. Church leadership. How are they able to protect and guide and shepherd the church? It isn't because they just want to do it. They just have an innate love, but it's the love of God working through them. That's why so many marriages in the world fall apart. They're founded on fleeting affections. But when two people come before God as in marriage as he designed it, they are pledging themselves wholly to each other with the hesed love of God. That's why in John 13, Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, it's not the love that the world is capable of. It's God's love. And it's what we've been setting in 1 John. It's what John kept belaboring. If the love of the father is in you, you will love your brother. So this is the reason David's love for Jonathan is different. This is why at this point, it's over 15 years since they made the covenant. I think there's one more reason that David is remembering this covenant at this time. David has just experienced Hesed love from God. Two chapters before this, in chapter 7, God forms the Davidic covenant with David. The Davidic covenant in that God established that David's lineage would always be on the throne of Israel. That his son would build the temple, the claimed temple, the house of the Lord. And in that, he also promised that he would lay to rest David's enemies. And he gave many other blessings to David. And he reaffirmed his covenant with David. It was an outpour of his hesed love for David. So the first piece here to rekindle our awe and amazement for the love that God has for us is understanding that the root of covenant is driven by the covenant love of God, the hesed love. There is no consideration, no exchange involved. It is based on the nature of God. So what does this covenant result in? Let's look at our next point, the result of covenant. Look, at with, look with me at verse three. And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, where is he? David has to press twice here to Ziba to get him to tell him where Mephibosheth is. Ziba is having a little bit of a guarded conversation with David. 
You may not pick up on it immediately, but Ziba could have straight off the bat said, yeah, there is a son of Jonathan called Mephibosheth. He's in Lodabar. But instead he just says, there is a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in both feet. Doesn't reveal any names or places. I think to understand why we have to look at our own concept of the transition of power. Think, for example, the U.S. presidency. When a new president is elected, it's a pretty peaceful transition of power. You know, after the new president is elected, two months later, a couple months later, he's inaugurated into the presidency. The former president usually attends that event. And then the former president welcomes the new president into the White House. It's a ceremonial dinner. And then the former president continues to be a public and political figure. It didn't quite work like that back in ancient Israel. I just want to pull a few examples. Listen to the, these passages from 1 Kings. I just wanted to show you how it looked different. So Basha, a new king, struck down the household of Jeroboam after becoming king. He did not leave to Jeroboam any persons alive until he had destroyed them. 1 Kings 16. Zimri, the new king, took over from Basha and killed his whole household and did not leave a single male, neither relative or of his friends. And in 2 Kings 10, Jehu asked for the 70 heads of the sons of Ahab. So the transition of power didn't look peaceful back then. The former king, he had to flee for his life. Anyone associated with him had to fear for their life, whether you were a son, whether you were a friend or an advisor. So that's why Ziba is a little guarded in his answer here. He knows that potentially maybe David could be coming after Mephibosheth to kill him. So that's why he's presenting in a very diffusive way. There's a son of Jonathan, maybe to remind David that you love Jonathan. He presents the fact that Mephibosheth is lame in both feet. Maybe to diffuse that he's any threat to David. So let's keep reading in verse four. So the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, behold, he is in the house of Mekir, the son of Amiel, and Lo-Debar. Lo-Debar quite literally means no pasture land. This wasn't a place close to Jerusalem. This wasn't near David's sphere of influence. It was far away. It was close to the Sea of Galilee, across the river on the other side. Mephibosheth was in a place as far away as he could be from David. Mephibosheth wasn't living in the Beverly Hills of Jerusalem. He was in Bakersfield. And from the looks of it, he was in a witness protection plan. Only Ziba and maybe a few others knew of where he was. So let's keep reading. Verse 5. Then King David sent and took him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. So we saw that Ziba's answer was guarded because he wanted to protect Mephibosheth. He didn't know what David's intentions were. We know that Mephibosheth is living in Lodabar. He is far from David's influence. I just want to put ourselves in Mephibosheth's shoes for a second. His entire life has revolved around avoiding David. Because when he was five years old, Saul and Jonathan, his father, both died in battle. That day when they were killed in battle, his nurse picked him up and ran with him because she feared for his life. And in the process of running away, she stumbled and dropped him. And that's why he's lame in both feet. And for 15 years, Mephibosheth has been living in Lodabar, a place that is outside of David's influence, far away. His worst fear is confronting David. He doesn't want to come anywhere near him because it might mean his death. 
So do you think that Mephibosheth was excited when someone came knocking on his door and said, King David is looking for you? This is the thing that he had feared for his entire life. He was terrified. We see his response in verse six. So Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he said, here is your servant. Mephibosheth is around 20 years old and he is prostrating himself before King David because he thinks that he has to beg for his life here. He thinks he's being brought into Jerusalem either to be publicly killed or made a public spectacle to be shamed in front of all of Israel so that Israel would know that the lineage of Saul is done with. That's the fear with which he is bowing before the king and he makes himself even more subservient than Ziba. When Ziba came before King David, he didn't, it, the Bible doesn't record that he laid himself prostrate before the king. But Mephibosheth did. He thinks he has to beg for his life. Let's see David's response though in verse seven. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show loving kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather, Saul, and you shall eat at my table continually. This is astounding. This contradicts the norm. This contradicts what people had expected. Think of David's court. They probably knew that David had summoned Mephibosheth and they're probably thinking he's being brought maybe to be publicly shamed, maybe to be killed. Maybe David's going to say something about the previous lineage of Saul. But David doesn't do what the expectation is. He changes the trajectory of Mephibosheth's life. And he does three things in this verse. We're going to look at all three. He gives Mephibosheth protection. He gives him provision and he changes his position. Let's look at the first one, protection. David says, do not fear. No longer does Mephibosheth need to be in hiding. He doesn't need to be in Lodabar anymore. He doesn't need to fear that David is coming for his life. He does not need to fear that David's soldiers are going to come after him or that even David's family is going to come after him. He says, do not fear. No one is going to get you. And this was the promise that David and Jonathan made with each other in 1 Samuel chapter 20. Jonathan made David promise, do not kill me if I'm still alive, but if I'm not, do not cut my lineage off. Jonathan was asking that David spare the lives of his family. And so with that phrase alone, David had fulfilled the covenant that he had with Jonathan. He said, do not fear. He's not gonna kill him. But we're gonna learn today that the result of covenant is not the minimum. It goes much far beyond the minimum because he keeps going. David doesn't stop there. David next gives provision to Mephibosheth. Let's look at the next verse. David says, I will surely show loving kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather, Saul. David is providing here abundantly for Mephibosheth. This is kingly property. When he says he's going to restore the land of Saul, this isn't like one acre that's off somewhere in Jerusalem. No, this is, Saul probably had the largest plot of land in all of Israel. And he gives the entirety of it. He restores the entirety of it. What would have come to Mephibosheth if he was going to be king, he restores that to Mephibosheth. It's so large. Let's read the description that the passage has for in, in verse nine and 10. It says, then the king called Saul's young man Ziba and said to him, all that belonged to Saul and to all his house, 
I have given to your master's grandson and you and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him. And you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food and eat of it. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table continually. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. This land is so massive that it requires Ziba. It requires his 15 sons and his 20 servants. This isn't even including the older women and the older children that were capable of serving as well. This land was so plenty that it could feed all of them and it was enough to sell and bring in a living for Mephibosheth and everything that was his. So we've seen the protection that David provides as a result of covenant. We've seen the provision that David gives to Mephibosheth and he could have stopped there. Again, he had already gone beyond what the covenant with Jonathan was. For remember, the result of covenant is not the bare minimum. It's not beyond the minimum. It is abundance. Let's keep reading. He says, and you shall eat at my table continually. This wasn't a dinner invitation to Mephibosheth. It wasn't saying, hey, we have really great chefs at the royal palace. You should come and check it out. No, this was a complete shift in the position that Mephibosheth had. Remember, he was the grandson of King Saul who persecuted David who should have been put to death, who had fled to Lodabar and was living in hiding, who was laying low, maintaining a low profile. And David says, you, Mephibosheth, shall eat at my table continually. The court of King David is where the most renowned people in all of Israel came to dine. It's where the foreign rulers came. It's where the magistrates, the wise men, David's wives, his children, the best warriors, his generals, that's where they dined. And Mephibosheth was being invited there. There's two reasons that the passage emphasizes about Mephibosheth over and over again. Two reasons that contradict the norm. Two reasons for why this should not be. It's his lineage and his lameness. We already talked about his lineage. He is the grandson of King Saul, someone who persecuted David. By every means, David should be putting him to death or banishing him from Israel. And the second is his lameness. Imagine the hall of King David. It's where the strongest warriors sat, his generals, the fittest men in Israel. It's where his beautiful wives were. Samuel goes on to describe his children as handsome and the best looking in the kingdom. All perfect attending David's court. And among them, Mephibosheth a crippled man who was from the line of Saul was invited to be there. He's in the most honored place in Israel despite every expectation that he shouldn't be. One author puts it, expecting the worst, Mephibosheth receives an abundance of grace, crippled and prostrate before the one who had supreme power over him. He finds himself lifted up and lavished with benefits. Brothers and sisters, the result of covenant is abundance. Covenant love shatters the norm. It shatters the expectation. It shatters the concept of consideration or requirement. It goes much beyond. It is lavish. And I want to take a step back here for a minute because you may be thinking to yourself that the Hesed love that David has for Jonathan parallels the Hesed love that God has for us. Now, the authorial intent 
of 2 Samuel chapter 9 is clearly to show the covenant-keeping love David has for Jonathan's household that is lavished upon Mephibosheth. And the original readers, the Jewish readers, would have been amazed by this kind of covenant-keeping love, but they would have clearly seen that the covenant love of David still fell far short of the Hesed love that Yahweh had for Israel. The Hesed love that Yahweh kept pouring out on them despite their cyclical cycles of sin in Judges, despite them turning their back against God after he had brought them out of Egypt. And they were probably much more amazed by the Hesed love of God. But how much more can we be amazed because we know Christ today? Brothers and sisters, we are comparable to Mephibosheth in this story. We're simply of the wrong lineage. We're of the race of Adam, the broken race. We were born into sin. We are inherently sinful and we're in enmity with God. We come from our own Lodabar, a place desolate and far from God, not anywhere near his glory or majesty. And we are misshapen and crippled by our own sin. By every measure, we have no right to approach God, to be loved by him or to be shown his mercy. We were dead in sin, enemies of God, and by every measure contemptible. But unlike Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth didn't do anything to offend David directly. His grandfather Saul did, but he hadn't done anything himself. But we, on the other hand, we have offended God directly. We weren't just born of Adam, but we also broke God's law. We offended God. And unlike David, who just sins two chapters later by committing adultery with Bathsheba, God is holy, sovereign, perfect, far more worthy of any honor, glory, and praise than David. Mephibosheth's life should have taken a very different trajectory. But David did not wait for Mephibosheth to come to him or impress him with a show of loyalty. Rather, he sought out the young, misshapen man and made him a member of the royal company. And that's our story today, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't wait for us to get our act together. He didn't wait for us to figure out how to obey his law or present ourselves as loyal servants. He didn't expect us to make ourselves holy and live to his perfection. No, God in his grace came after us first. He formed a covenant with us, a promise to forgive and restore fellowship with us that's rooted in grace. And grace is nothing other than hesed. When we come to the New Testament in the Greek, hesed translated as grace, this gift that we are not deserving of. And in grace, God also provides us protection, provision, and a change in position. God protects us from final judgment. He covers us from wrath through the blood of Christ. He cleanses us and makes us whole. He robes us in garments of white. So God protects us from the judgment we were due. But he goes beyond that. Remember, the result of covenant is not the minimum. It's not just you're not going to die. No, God provided. Not only did he provide a sacrifice in our place because we weren't able to bring anything on our own to 
pay restitution for our sins. No, God provided the sacrifice in Jesus on the cross. And again, he could have stopped there because that would have cleansed our sins and brought, and even the scales, and we would have had a second chance. But God goes beyond because Christ lived a perfect, righteous life and he took the righteousness of Christ and he bestowed that on us so that when he looks at us, he doesn't see our sinful rags. He sees the righteousness of Christ. Finally, he changed our position. Just like we sang this morning, once your enemy, but now seated at your table. From people forsaken in our own Lodabar, we are now co-heirs with Christ seated at the table of the King of Kings. And we don't deserve to belong there. We don't deserve to share eternal fellowship with our triune God. But God's love is so magnificent and marvelous and abounding and lavishing grace that he brings us back. He protects us from judgment. He provides a sacrifice in Christ. He provides his righteousness as our own and he transforms our position to be co-heirs with Christ. That's what brings us to our awe. That's what brings us to be amazed for the magnitude of the gospel. So how should we respond to this? What is our response to covenant? Let's look at Mephibosheth and have him teach us how to respond to it. Let's look at verse eight. Verse eight, it says, so he prostrated himself and said, what is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? We're going to see two responses that Mephibosheth has, worship and fellowship. And firstly, we're going to see that his worship is characterized by humility. After Mephibosheth just heard of everything that David's going to do for him, he lays face down before the king in a sign of homage and submission, and he calls himself a dead dog. Now, a dog in our culture today is pretty well loved. We have them in our homes. They eat our food. They sleep on our beds sometimes. They're pretty well liked. It wasn't like that in ancient Israel. They were viewed more like pests, maybe more like rats or mice. They were seen as an infestation on the streets. Mephibosheth lowers himself to a dog. He goes even lower. He says a dead dog. Isn't that articulate of our own former state when we were dead in sin, contemptible by every measure? And that's why our salvation is so unexpected. And in humility, Mephibosheth bows before the king because he is in awe of the grace he has just been shown. I just want us to ponder on a question this morning. Christ's love for us, like David's for Mephibosheth, is unexpected, so incredible. Have we become so used to it that it no longer causes us to be amazed? Are we amazed by the love of God? So worship is our first response. Worship characterized by humility. And the second is fellowship. This passage four times mentions the aspect of Mephibosheth eating at King David's table. Two times David says, you shall, as an invitation to Mephibosheth, you shall eat at my table. And two more times, the author records that Mephibosheth, in fact, did do that. In verse 11, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. 
And in verse 13, so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table continually. Mephibosheth accepted David's invitation to be a close member of the royal court, to establish a personal relationship with David. And there's many reasons Mephibosheth could have kept away. He could have kept away for reasons of pride. Now that he was self-sufficient, he had his royal estate of Saul's back. He could have said no. He could have stayed with his servants and his family. He could have been too busy, caught up in the management of his possessions and his servants and his family to dine with David. Or even for reasons of embarrassment because of his lineage or his lameness, David could have kept, or Mephibosheth could have kept away from David's courts. But Mephibosheth doesn't. He dines in the king's courts as one of his sons. There's a closeness in that relationship there. That's the picture painted for us of the invitation that God gives us. Brothers and sisters, is there something that is holding us back from fellowshipping with God who has brought us into his fold, who has elevated our position to be one of his sons? Are we too caught up in our own pride and our own self-righteousness to need God, think that, thinking that we can do this on our own, that we can do righteous deeds on our own? Or are we even too caught up in the busyness of the good gifts that God has given us? Maybe too busy in prioritizing things like family, ministry, and church above fellowship with God. Or are we too embarrassed by our own sin that we still struggle with to approach the throne of grace? God sought us out when we were in our worst state. There's nothing worse that we can show him. So we see Mephibosheth's response. There's one of worship characterized by humility and it's one of fellowship where he chooses to dine in the court of David. Now the author of Samuel saw it fit that Mephibosheth's story didn't end there. We actually see him one more time because he wanted us to see what a life characterized by worship and fellowship looked like over the course of a lifetime. So turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 19. And as we turn there, I want to set the stage again. Another 15 years has passed. King David has actually just been usurped by his own son, Absalom, who took the throne. And David is fleeing because he doesn't want to confront Absalom and kill him. And as he's fleeing with his men out in the wilderness, remember Ziba? Ziba comes to David with donkeys and provision and food and comes to bless David and his men. So David asked Ziba, How, where, is, where is your master Mephibosheth? And for some reason, Ziba chooses to lie. He chooses to deceive David, and he says to David, Mephibosheth actually stayed back in Jerusalem, thinking that the kingdom of Saul would be restored to him. Essentially telling David that Mephibosheth had stabbed his back. So when David hears this, he immediately passes a harsh judgment. He says, whatever is Mephibosheth's, I give it to you, Ziba. You are now the owner of all of Saul's land and everything that belonged to Mephibosheth, it is yours. But however, in 2 Samuel chapter 19, we get to see David confront Mephibosheth and we get to see the truth revealed. So look with me at 2 Samuel chapter 19. We're going to look at verse 24. Then Mephibosheth, the grandson of Saul, came down to meet the king. But he had neither tended to his feet 
nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes since the day the king departed until the day he came home in peace. And it was when he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, now remember David has in his mind what Ziba told him, that Mephibosheth had stayed back in hopes of getting the kingdom of Saul back. So with that in mind, David said to him, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? So he said, my Lord, the king, my servant betrayed me. For your servant, that Ziba, said, I will saddle the donkey for myself so that I may ride on and go with the king since your servant, that's Mephibosheth, cannot walk. Furthermore, he has slandered your servant to my Lord, the king. But my Lord, the king is like the angel of God. Therefore, do what is right in your sight. For all my father's household was only people worthy of death to my Lord, the king. Yet you placed your servant among those who ate at your own table. So what right do I still have that I should complain anymore to the king? This response is astounding. It's filled with humility and gratitude. It's been 15 years since Mephibosheth was given all the good gifts by David, since he was protected from death, since he was provided the, king, the kingly estate of Saul, since his position was elevated as one of the king's son. And in those 15 years, Mephibosheth could have told himself that I deserve this. This is mine now. He could have come to David and said, give me back what is mine. But not for a second had Mephibosheth forgotten the good gifts that he had were only as a result of the Hesed love that David had shown him. Mephibosheth says, we were a people worthy of death, but yet you placed your servant among those who ate at your own table. He has not forgotten what he was destined for. Let's keep reading his response. So the king said to him, why do you still speak of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. David's trying to go back on what he had said here. He's trying to make an amend. He's trying to say, actually, hang on. I don't mean to give it all to Ziba. Let's, let's split it equally between you and Ziba. And let's look at the key in Mephibosheth's response here in verse 30. Mephibosheth said to the king, let him even take it all since my Lord, the king, has come safely to his own house. Nothing else mattered for Mephibosheth. Not the provisions, not the servants, not the land, not the riches, not the position in David's court, none of that. The only thing that mattered to Mephibosheth was David. Brothers and sisters, that confronts our own heart affection today. Do we love our Savior more than anything else that he has saved us to? Anything else that he has blessed us with? Patrick has often posed the question, if heaven had nothing, none of its beauty, none of its magnificence, none of the freedom from pain, but only eternal fellowship with our Savior, would that be enough? Is our Lord and Savior our greatest treasure Brothers and sisters, a life enraptured in awe and amazement for the redemption that Christ has poured out for us responds like Mephibosheth. A heart that meditates on the lavishness of God's grace responds and says, you can have all this world 
but give me Jesus. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us to look at your word, to see the beauty of your Hesed love for us, to see how you worked through David to pour out love on Mephibosheth. Father, we are reminded of our undeserving nature, how far we are from you, how we are in our own Lodabar. And Father, you have rescued us to grace. and We thank you for that. We pray, Lord, that we'd be able to live a life that worships you in humility because of that, that desires to fellowship with you and you only, that we'd be able to lay aside every treasure of this world and seek you and you only. We pray, Lord, that you would transform our hearts to say, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. In your son's precious name we pray, amen.